The Q Affair. Part 2. The Q Woo. While some similarities to living people may exist in your mind on reading this novel, it is a work of fiction, so it's your problem if you have people like this in your life. Chapter 5 The first threat was from an avatar I didn't recognise, who used my name, then promised to slit my throat. My family's throats were to go too, apparently, because some soldiers stationed in England somewhere who were fumed out, stoned on drugs, apparently, maybe the usual evening's entertainment after a day's march or polishing buttons or whatever at their dull barracks while watching Desiree's videos. In hangouts, slightly lost on that as well, until much later when I discovered Hangouts is a Google app email users often use to chat on video to their email contacts when they want to have a business meeting or, you know, talk about the when and hows of slitting strangers' families' throats. Aren't you lucky you have me in this maze, dear reader, to guide you around the paths? There, there, squeeze his hand reassuringly. I know some of these sentences seem to go on forever and lead to dead ends, but trust me, or don't, as Q would say. Those soldiers were intending to do this. There was another one under that, showing an hour or two earlier, under a different avatar name. I was to enjoy having a job while I had it, because it wasn't going to last long. I could see not, as I'd read the second message first. Those soldiers must have told whoever the contact talking to them in hangouts was of the change of plans. They couldn't have been that stoned, after all, if they'd remembered to keep this mystery friend, the messenger, updated on the change of plans from loss of job to throat slit. I'd never seen the two avatars anywhere before, but I knew trolls often made sock accounts by creating new brand accounts. And these could come in handy whenever you wanted to give someone a bit of news like this that you were too overcome with shyness to say in your main account. I gathered that the avatar wasn't too disapproving of the plans they said were being made for myself and the fam, given the tone. And I had no clues from the avatar pictures who it might be. The messages had been deleted with only the notifications left but I could easily guess at the direction it came from, since any trouble always seemed to start from Desiree's direction. I'd say this went over the line for me, but of course, her behaviour had long since gone over the line, on videos nightly with her bullying and screaming out people's names and where they lived, calling them stalkers and murderers just because they wouldn't agree with everything she said quite often about them, no matter how ridiculous, and let her do and say what she wanted in various other chats, unhindered by anyone contradicting her or asking for proof of her allegations against various people. I thought about it all day at work, though I tried hard to zone out on the tasks to be done and stay calm. I didn't seriously think there were soldiers sitting about discussing me in hateful ways, but I had a pretty good idea of the levels her hatred would go to. And I knew the new troll for hire had friends on his channel, 
who I knew nothing about. Who knew what they would do for Desiree if they were paid? Maybe not kill me, but certainly there was a distinct possibility they tried to find out more about me, to give her more information. Then maybe swing into action with threats over the phone if she coughed up more cash. Who knew? I pictured my truculent and fairly grumpy boss getting phone calls when they discovered my place of work, maybe from multiple people, with the kind of language Desiree's paid trolls liked levelling at me in chat. Maybe frequent calls with the sprinkling of allegations of my bullying old ladies online that he made regularly in her comments and others, and thought it could indeed threaten my job as my boss had always seemed to resent having me working there anyway, and often tried to avoid paying me for as long as possible come payday. I wouldn't have the money or other resources like transport to get legal help or bring him to court to try to keep my job or get compensated for unfair dismissal. It's not like there were other jobs about either. Anything I'd found online and applied for before I'd found a permanent spot to live that I wouldn't have to move on from. I hadn't even received answers to when I applied. It wasn't like I had enough money saved to take another job and pay three months rent deposit should I manage by some miracle to get work elsewhere if I had to look again. Steady on, old thing, I thought. Steady on. And I wasn't sure if I meant me or Desiree as we were clearly both a bit emotional. I made sure to mention the death threats on video, of course, as it seemed wise to keep it public, since there was nothing to be done privately, and it often stopped one of our trolls from continuing down a path of harassing me in chats, etc., if I either mentioned them on a video or in a blog post, putting them into a humorous narrative as part of a YouTube blog story about the crazy channels I'd come across. I presumed most police people didn't want to do anything about threats made online when they had enough stuff to deal with offline, in progress, as they say. They'd turn up if they found my body, throat slit, but not before, in other words. I didn't write about the death threats much on the blog because I usually confined myself to light humour on it and found the threats all a bit dark. But I began to write about what I was finding out about the clue that Michael Quinn had given, which had initially yielded the number and Twitter account that I'd followed up on, and the strange web page online that I found through the tweets. It had links to other pages that seemed related, and the topic, though a bit obtuse, had some of the same words inserted as hashtags in the various documents. Still not really understanding the documents I'd found, I followed the links, some of which brought you to, to Facebook, where like-minded people can form groups based on common interests. There were a lot of groups that seemed to relate to the numbered group I'd found via the original link provided, with the same people in common. And I looked through some of their pages, trying to find mention of the somehow significant number to help me understand what the clue referred to. When I came to a group with the correct number on it, it was a private group. With the door firmly locked to me, 
the only way for the curious to obtain a key was to click the join button and wait to see if the door was to open. I paused at the threshold, then clicked, and the door soon sprang open for me. I was now inside and hoping to find out what the first clue led to, while also looking for the answer to a question I didn't quite have formulated in my mind yet. I had a map of sorts, but no legend and no signposts or markers filled in and was still a bit confused about what kind of a group I was looking at. That didn't last long, as it dawned on me what the strangeness in the whole truth community was about. It pretty much boiled down to one word. Discordianism. You what now? I imagine you might very well say. I didn't know what it meant at first either when I saw it. But I knew this group were really keen on art because they were making a lot of digital art and sharing it in the group. In the posts, all the comments and chat was what you'd hear amongst younger students who have a language between them to do with what brands they like, what bands, what cultural influences they have, what ideas they share that aren't quite to the old fogies taste and are unintelligible to fogies generally to listen to. But I did understand art at least, so I wasn't completely lost. They were also keen on ideas about science and technology and worked these into their digital artworks, the majority of which were far better than anything any of my lazy art students had managed to produce whenever they rolled out of bed and rocked up to the row of Mac computers to doss about for a while before sloping off in groups for cigarettes if there was any danger of me trying to trick them into doing a bit of work. Most of those students had been utterly talentless and it was like trying to make a silk purse out of a dog's ear, trying to get something creative out of them and could hardly use the software to create it or be bothered to learn. But this group was a hive of activity and there was a buzz of enthusiasm about sharing their ideas with each other, which was nice to see. The word discordian kept cropping up in the artwork and I googled it to see what it meant. I found quite a treasure trove of information. And just like that, my journey on the map was being marked out more clearly. And I felt I was at last making progress in my investigation. Now, I'm not very linear in my methods when I go about studying a topic. But after I'd gotten a rough definition through Mr. or whatever preferred pronoun you're having yourself, Google, and reading about it over the next few evenings, I started to get an idea of what this arty bit of fun was about. It had been started back in the birth of the acid hippie days when young people were really doing their own thing and dropping out, tuning in and getting turned on, partly by getting out of their heads and whatever drugs were on offer that went with the new explosion of psychedelic music, literature and a whole new youth culture which was about, well, being young. Being young, particularly being a te teenager, hadn't really been such a thing before and was considered as a phase in training for being an adult. 
rather than being something about rebellion and experimentation to see if you could come up with a better way to live than the old fogies you had to live with who were too square for your tastes by far. Having been a sometimes punk in my teens, I could almost dig it, man, even if hippies weren't exactly my thing, and the early fanzines of the arts and mass culture-inspired discordians put me in mind punk art aesthetics on LP covers, as well as cut-up inspired pop art thievery I'd seen when I'd come across pop art of the 50s in art college contemporaneous to some of the main Discordianism writers who in turn partly inspired other new art forms such as the panic art movements of the 60s. Discordian prankster practitioners jokingly declared themselves to have been originally inspired by the spirit of the classical world's goddess of chaos and discord, Eris, perhaps best remembered for helping to start the Trojan War. There was a sort of holy book section of Discordian novels written, which were full of mass culture jokes and playfulness too. And the Illuminatus trilogy was full of a lot of ideas like the evil cabal that I'd seen repeated on YouTube on the various channels without knowing until now who was feeding these stories to the people repeating them in the various chats and on videos and where they were getting their ridiculous ideas from. Now it was pretty clear to me where, and I laughed in glee like a Discordian demon. I had my map details to fill in, and had solved the puzzle thanks to one little number and a secret hand signal. It was all there, and it was such fun learning about it. For Discordians, Anything and everything was up for being made into a joke with nothing sacred. They had their own religion called Pastafarianism, complete with pasta gods and popes. Anyone could be the pope just by announcing it, although you could print out a business card for that if you wanted, since they'd have fun designing templates. There were Illuminati colouring books and instruction books for astral travel for Argonauts, a delightful and playful mishmash of ideas, with everyone having a wonderful time joking around with all sorts of dark and light ideas poking fun at them all. Squares, of course, being sadly lacking in humour and fond of fitting into society and all that dull stuff, have always tended to frown greatly on any kind of good time, particularly anything that smacked of irreverence to prevalent social norms. So we're unlikely to get the joke or the art into thing, let it alone enjoy the chaos. They did, however, make ideal unwitting participants, if you are one of these pranksters wanting to perpetrate a joke on a very large scale throughout the entire truth community of YouTube. You could organize to run an op secretly to do just that and maybe even have success in fooling the gullible that some pretty nutty ideas were reality. I understood the purpose of the secret numbered document. It was instructions for running the op called Op Panic Mind. I got it. I got it so easily once I saw 
what was behind the strange narratives about the evil Illuminati cabal. They were psyoping truthers on YouTube with that I didn't really even have a desire to read all the Discordian books, of which there turned out to be many. I don't know how I hadn't ever come across any of them before or heard of them all those years ago in art college. I suppose things come and go in fashion. I could see how it had fed off art ideas and being fed by them, but the word was new to me and it unlocked so much. I had wondered about monographs videos first, if I remember correctly. Those acres of tiled black and white floors and Masonic rituals he featured in his videos, which were supposed to make one feel uncomfortable and did put real fear into many of the demon-pursued faithful that seemed to love the thrill of frightening themselves by watching his videos on the sly and asking other Christians in Colonel Peter's chat if they'd seen the latest dreadful thing he'd done, not that they watched any of his evil videos. The other person usually rushed over there to look if they hadn't already seen it. I remembered how Michael Quinn had insisted that a satanic cabal had kidnapped his son and his showing thalamic sigils or decorative motifs which reminded me of popular tattoos with the tribal look I'd seen festooned on arms as the in thing with the discerning metal fan. And these featured strongly in both the digital artwork and the Discordian fanzine posts the groups posted. It started to click with me in new ways how they used imagery in their videos after finding the Facebook groups one day while out on one of my rare bus trips further afield. I'd had a day off on the day I usually didn't, Saturday, the busiest day at the restaurants usually, so not one I had free for catching a bus to the city often. I'd gone into the city to look around the shops and browse, maybe pick up a new pair of jeans, cheap, or something nice for the house. I was in a favourite shop, an Irish one that one would think was a Spanish shop in the summer, full as it was with so many excited Spanish students whose parents sent them to Ireland to learn English, all jabbering away in awe at the fabulosity, yeah, it's not a word, God help the Spaniards, of the clothes which were often knockoff copies of catwalk things, badly made but very cheap and colourful. I was enjoying myself tremendously, looking through all the household things, which doesn't sound very exciting, but is, if you have the first place of your own, not furnished by any landlord but you, where you can buy things that express your own tastes, instead of looking at tired and ugly things, which don't go together or don't perform the function you want properly, like a comfy cushion that's pretty too, or a tray, like the one I was staring at fixedly now, with no doubt a particularly stupid look on my face. I nearly said Eureka and leaped up in the aisle. So sudden was the realisation that the pattern on the wooden painted tray reminded me of an Escher pattern I'd seen, which reminded me in turn of monographs, tiled floors, and no doubt there would be several other associated ideas stored in that particular thinking box which I still had no idea were called cultural memes, but which I grasped conceptually acted like triggers that got you to think a certain way whenever you saw them 
through association. I scanned other items I could see in the vicinity. Yes, butterflies. I'd seen them everywhere on YouTube creators' videos, and here they were on candle holders, T-shirts, cushion covers. The year before, I remembered, it had been all owls with not a butterfly in sight. I'd noticed this phenomenon before, but hadn't understood its function. The Discordian material I'd seen brought it into focus for the first time. It performed a kind of heuristic function for people, having a visual metaphor to attach meaning to. And the meaning was not just culturally loaded. It could be loaded with anything you wanted to load it with if you were clever enough to reinforce the association so that it became a habit in people's minds to think of what you wanted them to think about each time they saw that thing. For example, Alec Johnson's InfoPill show had endlessly played and replayed footage of giant owls with the Illuminati secretly gathering to worship in forests like a replay of Hammer horror films I'd seen in my childhood. And at the same time, owls with a big t-shirt thing on the main street of the city and presumably in glossy magazines for glossy ladies that preferred magazines to books. So you could program people to think of your show about the secret Illuminati meetings in the woods every time they saw an owl image in a shop. Maybe they'd then want to see more of your videos or rewatch the owl one. I was shocked that I didn't know these things really once I saw it, but it wasn't something I'd ever had to think about before I'd started hearing such crazy stories, which so many people seem to take as factual, down in the truth community of YouTube. The Discordians feeding the stories in must have been laughing themselves silly at the idea that people would believe literally anything and that all they had to do was load up the visual associations or the hashtags and the viewer's own imaginations would do half the narrative work and start creating new narrative layers on top of the basic storyline being presented allowing the story to develop and go in ever more ludicrous directions as a result of their ludicrous human imaginations. The original Discordian group had, in fact, been known as the Merry Pranksters for their playful use of popular culture symbols. I mean, let's face it, people just make up stuff when they don't have all the facts and associate things that often don't have any rational association other than whatever culture chooses to assign to them based on how they want the consumer to behave. For example, you buy their t-shirt if you associate a butterfly with freedom and freedom is a commodity they are pushing the emotional value of at the time in mass media. It can be a difficult concept but if you'd done any marketing as I had with a period of unemployment resulting in a free course in it that added another piece of paper to my folder, but not another job, it wasn't hard to see how utilising your emotions by triggering them with an image or hashtag or buzz phrase could get you to take action and behave the way they wanted you to, as that's pretty much what marketing tries to do to get you to want the product. Then do something they want you to do. Buy it.
Not only can you get people to believe what you want them to believe by repetition of images, words or phrases, particularly emotive ones, which carry more power than intellectual ones, but you can get them to insert things dredged up from the darkest recesses of their own dank, fearful corners of their unconscious minds if you just give them a little initial push in the right direction. And then you can get them to think or do stuff based on their fears as well as their desires. First, serve them up a video with a tiled floor, a bloodied handprint on a window, some surrealist art-inspired party get-together that looks very suspect and threatening. And later, they'll be ready for babies being eaten in basements by the evil cabal led by Hillary Clinton. And you don't need to knock yourself out to do it because their imaginations do the rest of the work for you. The adrenaline has to keep flowing, though, down the tube for them to keep tuning in to your content. Boredom loses views. Sensationalism gets views, so feed them more. And don't let them become bored by becoming too desensitised and not being able to get their hit anymore. More adrenochrome then, like in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Harvest those children metaphorically using hashtags and lurid thumbnails on videos to save them and use them like traffic to bring traffic to your videos, then sacrifice them to the thumbs up beast for thrills and gore. More, more, more. How do you like it? I almost danced around the shop like a mad woman, to the music piped in that kept the shoppers in the perfect frame of mind for the goods. So happy was I to have properly cracked the code that explained the madness on my part of YouTube that seemed to be ever escalating. I found links to things about memes later, and these articles from magazines and slideshows from college courses expanded on what some of the memes were that I had been seeing but not really understanding the purpose of in tweets put out by some of the groups on Twitter. And I started looking at these other groups as well as the first one I came across. The first group, which I was a member of, having had to join, gave me insight into something else, which made a different part of the puzzle click later on. The group professed to be keen on preserving each member's anonymity. And with this in mind, had created a method of passing accounts within the group along. I found when I joined the group that my avatar now had options and I was asked whether I wanted to post as myself or someone else, something I'd never seen before on Facebook. Facebook has brand accounts as well where you can switch among identities, but I hadn't seen it used like this with the group setting up that option for you. Members were encouraged to change between identities sometimes to preserve anonymity, presumably in the service of the playful jokery that abounded inside what was essentially the headquarters of a game. I had three identities to choose from and often saw others with the same identity copied, most identities having something to do with the Illuminati's trilo trilogy referring to characters in it, as Michael Quinn's name had, unbeknownst to me, until now, being the name of a character 
with the first and last names reversed. I started writing about this fantastically interesting new development on the blog, and I was having a wonderful time again. Well-deserved after Desiree's best attempts to get me down with the death threats aimed my direction. It was coming into summer, bees were buzzing, sun shining, and life was just grand.